You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge Knives. Now, Outdoor Edge has a large range of fixed and replaceable blade knives and game cleaning kits. Now, imagine this. You just shot a deer in the backcountry or an elk or whatever, and it's time to break it down right? It's hot. You're a long way from the truck. So time is a factor and you got to get the meat back to the truck. So there's no waste. Your blade becomes dull. So instead of having to stop and sharpen the blade, all you do is you take your outdoor edge knife, you push a button on the handle, the blade pops out, you put a new blade back in and you're back to work. You get back to the truck, there's no wasted meat, everybody wins. Now, if you want to find out more information about Outdoor Edge and their complete line of knives and game cleaning kits, all you have to do is go to OutdoorEdge.com and when you check out or you decide you want to purchase a knife, enter the discount code NATION30 and you're going to save 30% off of your purchase. That's NATION30 and that's OutdoorEdge.com. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July holiday weekend. I know I definitely got my uh, my share of work in. Uh, we didn't do too much uh, with friends in terms of, you know, fireworks or anything like that. Uh, but I did go and do a whole bunch of scouting. Over uh, one of the days I went out with Shane Simpson, and we drove out to North Dakota. And, of course, most of you guys know we hunted North Dakota last year, and we wanted to take another trip prior to this year's hunt in order to just kind of check things out a little bit. And I'll throw in a you know a quick plug for, for Onyx here. We both had that running, and it was nice because you know you're going to go through areas inevitably where you're not going to have cell service. We were able to, ahead of time, download large maps that just kind of have the major roads and towns and things like that for a large chunk of area. And then we're also able to pre-download maps of smaller areas that have a lot of public lands and the the private land boundaries and all that information so that we didn't really have to worry going into it whether or not we're going to have any issues with cell service. And also the thing about North Dakota is if land is not posted, if private land is not posted, it means you can hunt on it. But 
people don't have all of their corners of their land marked. So you might see a field and that field has a posted sign on it, but you might not realize that that field is actually owned by two different people and the dividing lines are right down the center of that field. And so on one half of that field might be, uh, you know, owned by one landowner privately posted. You can't, you know, step foot on that, um, on that land. Whereas on the other side of that invisible line, it's actually owned by somebody else. It's not posted and you'd be able to access uh, that to get to say landlocked or public land, or you'd be able to actually, you know, hunt that land. So knowing where the property boundaries were was a huge help in addition to knowing where the public land boundaries were. Uh, so just wanted to, you know, throw that out about how, you know, Onyx really does make a big difference in those types of hunts. But we basically went out there and, you know, we found some good stuff, some not so good stuff. The first place we went to was the place that I shot my buck. And we went back there and did a bunch of scouting. And most of the stuff that we found was about the same as we had remembered it. Uh, we did find a tree stand actually stuck in a tree, probably less than 100 yards from where I ended up shooting my deer. And it was a, a lock-on that was stuck up in the tree, hit the guy at screwing steps. Uh, on WMAs in Minnesota, or North Dakota, I believe the rule, and I, I just kind of glanced over this because I didn't plan on leaving anything anyway, but I believe the rule is between August something and the end of the year you can leave stands up. Uh, but of course, it's July, so it's not technically supposed to be there, but it's also nice to be able to understand historically where other people have set up and where people might be hunting. We never bumped into those people despite hunting on a weekend. So my guess is that, uh, that stand was probably there either for hunting later in the season, maybe closer to the rut, or maybe it was a, a rifle hunter stand, but we kept scouting and we found a couple other good spots back there around some of the swamps and between the swamps and the, the open fields. Unfortunately, that one field that I was hoping would be alfalfa again was, looked like just some type of grass, um, hay most likely. So we'll see what that looks like come September and on one of those, you know, speed tours or as we're walking in there, we'll probably go in a little bit early and just see what the sign looks like and not just blindly set up in the same spot, hoping to have the same kind of experience, you know, definitely check, confirm, make sure the sign still looks good, provided the wind is also good before making the decision of actually setting up there or continuing to move on to a plan B or C type of area. So then we went and drove around a little bit more and checked out some other public spots and we didn't step foot on all of them. A lot of them, we just kind of drove around and looked at, okay, what does this place look like from a distance? Where can we access from? Is there a parking lot? Do you have to drive park on the side of the road? Do you have to access through private? Can you just access through the public? Do you have to drop in a little, you know, kayak in a ditch to get up there? Or can you just walk all that kind of stuff? And importantly too, looking at of the crops that are growing around, which ones are growing, you know, alfalfa, which is pretty much nothing, which ones are growing canola, which seem to be a pretty common crop this year, which ones are growing soybeans, which if they're still good by the time we get up there, great. I know last year was even earlier than this year's hunt and it was already starting to yellow and the deer weren't really hitting those beans. Uh, the other crop that we saw quite a bit of was sugar beets. So it's very likely that once again, if, you know, if we can't find any uh, alfalfa or something like that, I uh, hear that the sugar beets and the canola, uh, they're both later in the year types of draws, you know, once those things freeze and they start to get sweeter, but acorns might be once again, another kind of key crop. The acorns from the bur oaks are really hammering last year. And my guess is it might be the same. So we were definitely putting a large focus on where a lot of those bur oak trees were, uh, cause there wasn't much for white oaks uh, themselves. It was more of a bur oak 
uh, type of thing that you would find out there. And then there was one last place we got out, and it was so thick. Uh, Shane had been wanting to check this place out since before we started hunting last year. We finally got a chance to get some boots on the ground. It was ultra thick with the foliage up, uh, lots of mosquitoes, 90-plus degrees, real muggy and humid. But we did end up finding a couple spots where you could tell that deer were using it pretty heavily uh, around some some beaver dam-type areas, and we even... It was kind of funny. We were just kind of staying in a spot, inferring and discussing amongst ourselves as to what would be the most ideal tree in a particular setup. And Shane reached over and just cracked a branch. And as soon as he cracked that branch, a deer jumped up that was probably around 20 yards from where we were standing. It was just so thick we couldn't see it. Uh, The deer was totally fine with us standing there chatting and, and talking. But as soon as he cracked that stick, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back and that deer took off. But we got a lot of spots marked and, you know, definitely looking forward to that hunt. It'll be a couple more people on that trip than there was last year. So I'm looking forward to it. The other scouting that I did this uh, weekend was I went over to Wisconsin and scouted some bluff country. And this is a place where I had never really deer hunted it, but I have turkey hunted it a couple of times. And I basically have turkey hunted it enough to know that I should probably be deer hunting it too. It's one of those types of places. The The place is really flat on top, but the bluffs drop down very steep uh, to the point where there's only certain regions where you can actually get from the top to the bottom. And the flats on top are very, very thick. There's a lot of you know high stem count areas. There's a lot of uh, thick brush. And so there's a lot of good security cover up on top. And there's also a lot of you know bigger buck sign. There's good historical rubs, uh, a few scrapes. I also have found some tree stands up on top of some of those benches and those flats. But what I really wanted to figure out was how are the deer using and how are the deer bedding on those bluff edges? Uh, There's a couple spots that looking at the top, I kind of assumed there might be some vertical cliffs and maybe even a waterfall. And uh, there's, there's places where I could potentially access from the bottoms too. So I was really hoping to figure out, hey, if I can find spots where I have good pinch points, either adjacent to bedding or in between bedding areas, and I can sneak up from the bottom on like a morning sit and just get, you know, right up in in one of these drainages and climb a tree, you know, 25, 30 feet and get level or above where those deer would be traveling right on the edges of those benches or where they drop down on some of those trails. That was really what I was looking for. And I did find quite a number of beds. I didn't, I didn't keep track, but I probably found close to 10, what I would consider buck beds. A lot of them were right where you'd expect kind of on the points of the ridges, but there were also a lot of beds that were a little bit further up, like not quite on the tip, but a little bit further back from the actual point of the ridge. And I wasn't quite sure if that was the same deer, just, you know, adjusting his bedding for different winds because this particular place doesn't have leeward sides for every wind direction. So I wasn't sure if he was just using those other bedding spots away from the actual point when he had an off wind and he couldn't use the leeward side, but was maybe still choosing to bed there and just look the other direction. I wasn't sure if that was the case or if that was satellite deer bedding, but uh, I marked pretty much everything that I found. And a lot of the places where these deer were bedding, the actual beds themselves were over areas where it was tough for the deer to just drop off the side of the the ledge because there was, it was just so steep. Uh, A lot of them, still had ways that they could basically bust out and get down to lower elevations, 
but it wasn't always right on the bed. It might be, you know, slightly adjacent where the deer would have to run, you know, five, 10 yards before he could finally start angling downwards. And I also did find and did confirm there was a little bit of a waterfall and right over the top of that waterfall, there was a faint trail. There was a point up on either side of the waterfall. The waterfall was about halfway down in elevation. So it wasn't like it was way at the top. It was like halfway down and with a point on either side. So there's bedding on both points and a slight trail that went down from the point on one side, kind of crossed over where the top of that little waterfall was and it was dry. There's no water flowing through right now. And then back up the other side. And I basically just walked at the elevation of the top of that waterfall because that's kind of where there was a big bluff, right? That whole elevation line, it was just like a, a steep vertical cliff. And I was able to walk right on the upper edge of that. And there was a trail right on the upper edge of that bluff going all the way around at that elevation line. And what I ended up finding was there was good deer travel and good trails like worn into the dirt at that particular elevation line all the way around uh, all those points and ridges, but there was still bedding up above. So the deer were bedding up on the higher elevations overlooking some of those lower trails, but yet they still had the ability to get down to those lower trails. And even on certain locations on those lower trails, you would find gaps in the bluffs and that's where you'd find additional trails that go all the way down to the very bottom to the lowest elevations. So I really felt like that scouting trip was very beneficial. I really don't like scouting in the summer with boots on the ground. I'd much prefer to get that kind of stuff done back in, you know, March, April timeframe, but I didn't have a chance to do that this year in this particular location. And I'm kind of of the opinion that getting Intel at maybe an inopportune time or a less than ideal time is still better than not getting Intel at all. And I've looked at the maps enough time that it really wasn't much else that I could pick out from the maps. I just had to get boots on the ground and really check that place out. And I'm glad I did. And so the topic that I really want to dive in a little bit further detail into this podcast is, uh, identifying pinch points. And on one of my last podcasts, I talked about how to look at maps and identify areas to gun hunt. And in this one, I really want to focus on pinch points and you'll be seeing uh, some video type content to go along with some of these podcasts that may help explain things a little bit better, but there's also things that I'll be able to talk about in the podcast and certain examples and things like that, that I might cut out of the videos just for, you know, the purpose of staying concise in those videos. When we talk about funnels and pinch points, it's good to talk about context too. There's some people who will just focus on those types of things when they're deer hunting in general. And then there's other people that will talk about pinch points and funnels for very specific and certain either times of year or applications. And for me, I really focus on pinch points in two different contexts. One is during the rut. If I can find pinch points or funnels between bedding areas, that's definitely going to be an area uh, that I'll key on and a time frame that I'll key on those pinch points. The other time is even when I'm hunting bedding, I will still look at where the, some of those pinch points are. Cause if there's a pinch point that is adjacent to bedding or it's, you know, close by and it's really kind of funneling down that deer movement. And it's one of those places where maybe I feel like I can't get quite up tight to that bed. I need to stay back a little bit. Then knowing where those pinch points are is still going to give me a higher odds of basically getting that deer to come by me. Even if I had to set up, you know, over a hundred yards away. That's especially true on some of those uh, hill country type beds where you might have that point of that ridge wrap around a little bit and that deer might follow out of its bed at that elevation line to get around a steep cut. And that's, you know, potentially where you'd set up. 
Now, in general, I kind of categorize these pinch points or funnels into four major types. One is terrain type, one is vegetation type, another is water type, and the last one would be like man-made funnels. So for terrain funnels, one example would be a high ground swamp bridge. So if you got high ground on one particular area of a swamp, and then you also have another area of high ground, and you have a small little land bridge or, or strip of high ground basically is what it is between those two places of high ground. And on either side of that little land bridge, you just have wet marsh or swamp. Then that can be a, a really great funnel that deer will take. And oftentimes you'll find trails that are just worn down into the dirt on those types of uh, terrain funnels. And the big bucks might not always use those worn down heavy in the dirt trails, but the does definitely do. Uh, there's been a lot of areas where I've kind of confirmed with trail cameras and found just lots and lots of general deer traffic in those types of areas. So definitely if you're looking at, you know, like an any deer type of spot and you're in swamp type country and you're hunting, say during the rut, those little high ground bridges, if you can find them, uh, can be really good. An ideal case would be like, if you have two different areas of, uh, places where you know the does bed and you have that little piece of high ground connecting the two, that'd be a great place to set up just on the downwind side of that, of that bridge. Uh, and then you'll get potentially bucks that will basically cruise from one uh, side to the other and use that land bridge, or at least be close to it as they will kind of go from one bedding area to the other. Now what that'll look like on a map, because these swampy areas oftentimes aren't going to show that type of small elevation change on a, a contour, unless you're using something really defined like LIDAR or two foot contour or something like that. You're most likely going to find these things on the aerial maps. It's a little bit easier in open marsh because it's so obvious the difference between hardwoods and marsh that you can just say, Hey, look at that. There's green here. There's green here. And there's a little strip of green connecting them. And it can be as simple as that. If you got leaf off imagery, then it would just be the brown trees, brown trees, and then a little strip of brush or something connecting them. And that would be something you could go and verify on foot that that's a actual, you know, little land bridge that's connecting those two pieces of high ground. Now in wooded swamps, it can be a little bit more challenging if you have leaf on aerial, if it's like a summertime imagery, because it's a little bit more challenging to decipher two different types of green. But if you look at those maps enough, and especially if you are familiar with what the different types of tree types look like, on summertime aerial imagery, then you can start to pretty easily tell the difference between, Hey, these are bigger trees like maples and oaks and things like that. And then here, these types of trees that we have are, you know, tamaracks or spruces or what have you. And then you can make the, you can decipher the change there. You can look at that little bit of transition line and in marsh or swamp type habitat, that's kind of the only main pinch point that I will key in on that isn't going to be also covered in one of these other types that I'm going to go over. So the next type of terrain funnel that I would talk about is uh, ditches and fence rows. And most oftentimes you're going to find these in farm country. The ditch is just going to be a slight depression that's going to be long and narrow and travel between say fields, for example, or might cut through the middle of a field. Uh, if it's older, it might be wooded. You might find a, a ditch running through uh, a wooded area. But basically, uh, you might find that these deer could use those ditches as travel corridors, especially if there's some type of security cover growing in those ditches. When I do some of my aerial scouting for Western states like South Dakota, 
North Dakota and certain regions, if I start looking at a place like Nebraska, there's certain areas out there where a large portion of where a deer can get from A to B once the crops come out is going to be from things like fence rows, things like ditches, and then the actual woodlots themselves. And so if you have two areas that are connected by either a fence row or you have two areas that are connected by some type of drainage ditch, then for a deer to get from one woodlot to the other, he's got to use that narrow little travel corridor. And of course you could even, right, you could set up right on that, or you could set up just on one side or the other, basically where uh, one of the edges of that uh, funnel meets the woods. Uh, But those are good places to look at. And then in terms of mapping, one of the things that kind of gives these particular funnels away is just, they're usually straight lines or, you know, they look man-made-ish. But that being said, there's also uh, terrain funnels in these types of areas that are more water related, which I'll get to just in a little, a little bit. So we've talked about the swamp, uh, high ground bridges, the, the ditches or fence rows, which are more straight line uh, and more open farm type country. Uh, hill country is probably where you're going to find the most type of terrain funnels. Uh, and so the ones that I look for specifically in hill type country would be number one, the top of steep drainages. So when you look at a topography map, you will find that you'll get these drainages that'll have basically the shape of V's as they go up the drainage. Uh, so it's basically like the opposite of a point. You got your point and then you might have another point or, you know, a ridge line next to it. And there's going to be a drainage or a ravine between those. And oftentimes at the, the top of those drainages or those ravines, if it's steep enough country, you'll get areas where it might be bluffed out or it might be full of debris and the deer will find some type of area close to the top of those drainages to be able to cross around. So it kind of acts like an inside corner from an elevation perspective. Another place that's probably more well-known would be a saddle. Uh, so it's kind of like, a, you know, a dumbbell in 3D if you're looking at the topo map. Uh, so the easiest way to find these would be uh, if you look on a ridge line and you might have elevation lines that continue to go up as you go up the hill, but then all of a sudden they stop at a certain location, but on either side of that point, they continue to, to rise. And if you're new at looking at topo maps, the easiest way to learn how to identify saddles in my opinion, it would be to go look out west, go look at like the Rocky Mountains or something and follow just a big ridge line. And then you'll be able to see very easily, okay, here's a peak, here's a peak, and here's what that saddle between those two peaks looks like. And then once you know what that looks like on a topo map, you can start to apply that to areas that don't have quite that level of elevation change. Now with saddles, typically the ones that are going to be the, the best or the most used are the ones that are the most extreme, uh, that give the deer the best advantage to be able to use them as opposed to climbing around. But there's also things with saddles in terms of how you hunt them that, uh, are a little bit more involved, uh, such as how you would play the wind in that type of a a scenario. The last one that I will talk about in hill country is, is kind of a, it could be one or two, depending on how steep it is, uh, benches and bluffs. So if you have a bench, what that basically means is that you have a hillside and along that hillside, it's mostly a very slanted elevation but on a certain point, you might have a spot where it kind of flattens out. And so you're not at the top of the hill yet. You're just somewhere on the side and you got this area that's flattened out. It could be just a natural bench, or it could be that there was maybe like a logging road that was cut into the hillside at some point and they needed to get vehicles up there that can create nice little benches that go up a hillside. The way do you find a bench on a topo map would be 
if you look at a hillside and you see all of these lines of elevation that are roughly the same spacing, and then you find another area where all of a sudden that spacing just opens up just a little bit, that'll indicate that there's a bench there. And it's especially a good, uh, strong bench if you have lines that as you get up to that bench, the lines get closer and closer together, and then they widen out, indicating that it gets steeper and steeper and steeper, and then it gets nice and flat. You got a good military crest there, uh, so there's there's good advantages for deer to be able to look down if they're bedded off of those types of uh, benches. Uh, it might be a good travel corridor if you got you know that nice thermal tunnel forming at that elevation line, and those deer will like to travel uh, right at the top lip of those those benches oftentimes. Now bluffs are a little bit of the same but they're just more extreme. So with a bluff, you might have, instead of just a really steep slope leading up to a flat spot, you might have a vertical cliff that leads up to a flat spot. And just like with the benches, the deer will oftentimes travel right on the upper edge of those. And oftentimes you'll find that deer will bed right on the upper edge of that bluff as well, especially if that bluff kind of tapers out into a point like that place I was at in Wisconsin. That was a place where I found a lot of the beds were on the top of those bluffs as they kind of you know, tapered around to an actual point. But in terms of the pinch points that the bluffs can create, because they're so steep, they really narrow down where the deer can move. There's only certain spots on those bluffs where the deer can get from a higher elevation to a lower elevation. So if you walk the top edge of a bluff line, you'll find that there's going to be certain locations where that bluff opens up a little bit and you can actually feasibly get from one elevation down to the lower elevation. And oftentimes you'll find deer trails that are already at those locations. And a lot of times they'll be pounded into the dirt. They'll be uh, really heavily used and they'll be really obvious because the deer are going to be kicking up dirt as they go up that steep incline or go down that steep incline. So those can be really good pinch points. They're especially noteworthy when you have some type of a thick security cover up on top of those uh, benches or those bluffs where you have the flat areas that have a lot of cover and then you have that bluff back behind it that makes those deer feel like they're very comfortably able to traverse right on the edge of that bluff. And they're able to use uh, the wind to their advantage and they're able to use their sight a little bit to an advantage as well. So we've covered the swamp. Now we've covered the more open farmland type of, of key funnels. And we've talked about hill country a bit. There's some additional, you know, minor funnels in those type of habitats as well but I think the ones that I've touched on are kind of the key ones and the easiest ones to find. Uh, I didn't really talk about bluffs in addition to benches in terms of how you can find those on top of maps, but essentially they look almost identical. It's just that bluffs are going to be more extreme. And depending on the size of the bluff, you might not find that the lines actually say touch, right? If you have a 20 foot contour map and the bluff is only 10 foot, a lot of times those bluffs won't actually show up on a topo map, you'd have to look at something like LIDAR mapping, uh, or, you know, 3d EP or something like that to be able to see that, okay, there's probably a very steep or vertical incline right here. So sometimes with bluffs, it's, it's best to kind of get boots on the ground to kind of confirm where they are and especially where the gaps in the bluffs are. You almost have to do that boots on the ground. So in addition to the terrain funnels, we got the vegetative funnels. Deer are creatures of edge. And so they'll oftentimes travel where you have two different types of vegetation or the transition between vegetation and open, and they'll go right on that line. So if there's certain places where you can find that edge that also has some type of a pinch, that can be a great area to focus on. And that's something that also will kind of play into all those other terrain types as well. 
if you have say a bench or you have uh, a steep ravine that at the top where those deer cross also is a transition of say thick high stem count to more open timber that makes that pinch point even better. So what can you look at on the maps to be able to find that type of funnels? Well, if you have something like the edge of a clear cut or the edge of a field, things like that are going to be really obvious, right? If you have big trees next to grass, very obvious uh, type of transition there, but sometimes it can be a little bit more challenging to find those. Uh, and so if you look at enough aerials, you'll be able to see basically just like a change in, you know, tree type or size, and you'll be able to see what that looks like on an aerial. It's easiest when the leaves are off on the aerials, but even if you have say summertime imagery, if you look at enough aerials, you can kind of still tell this is what say a big oak tree looks like. This is what smaller shrubbier trees look like and that type of thing. Clear cuts and the edges of them are great places to look if the, the place has grown up after being logged. It's going to be extremely thick as it continues to regrow and you'll be able to see that edge very clearly. And the same is true if you have some type of a, a field edge or a CRP edge or even the transition between say marsh and hardwoods. Now those edges in and of themselves aren't great funnels. You'll find a lot of deer travel there, but the same type of things that we looked at in some of those other habitat types, when they're combined with those vegetation funnels are going to be where you'd want to focus on there. So like, let's say, for example, you have an inside corner, uh, where you might have a field, let's say it's a, a cut corn field or something. The deer will, if they want to get to, from one side to the other, they could cross right out in the open, but more likely they're going to wrap around uh, the back corner of that field and essentially cutting right around that inside corner is going to be the shortest distance for them to get between where they are and where they want to be without actually exposing themselves out in the open. And if you have a long, narrow field, you have basically a double inside corner where the deer is going to basically wrap around that whole entire uh, back end of that field. And you have an inside corner on each side. So that can be a good funnel to look for. That's also pretty easy to identify on an aerial photo. If you have a narrow strip of cover, uh, like I talked about with the fence rows and the ditches, uh, that can be a good place to look. And if you have say like a clear cut that has not just a straight line, if it has a straight line, then again, inside corner might be a good place to look. But also if you just have kind of a, a wavering line where you have uh, little points where that clear cut sticks out into the open hardwoods and then depressions where it sticks back in, where you have those little ins and outs that can create corners as well that can be acted at upon uh, as pinch points. In addition to these vegetation funnels, we have water funnels and water funnels can be huge depending on where you're at. Outside bends of a river act very similar to how a deer would have to travel around an inside corner of a field. So you could have an oxbow in a river and we always say, Hey, deer will like to bed oftentimes on the, you know, inside of that oxbow Well, on the outside of that bend in the river, oftentimes you have a steep cut bank and for the deer to get from one side to the other, they're going to have to cross around that oxbow and where that trail usually ends up being is very close to the edge of the river, very close to that, that steep bank. And the deer will basically wrap around in the shortest uh, place that they can provided they have good uh, cover to get from location A to location B. Those types of ones are really obvious and easy to find on aerial maps. Ones that are a little bit tougher to find on aerial maps would be where the deer would cross 
streams or, or creeks. If you look at certain rivers on maps, you might find that some areas look deeper and some areas look shallower. You might have the ability to see on aerial photos, rocks or rapids that might indicate that the river is a little bit shallower there. And that would be a good place to go and check out and look for a crossing of that creek or, or small river. But if you have a creek that's running through, say, hardwoods, then it's a little bit more challenging to find where those deer would cross. And it's the same type of thing if you have um, in that steeper country little uh, drainages where you have small streams that kind of run down or, they, you know, they might be dried out by hunting season, but they're basically the places where the water will collect and run downhill and it'll cut away at those ravines. You might find also places in, in areas like those where you have a pretty steep uh, crossing. Like that place in Wisconsin, there was like a, a dried out waterfall, right? Where you had a ravine where it got down to a certain point and it just became a bluff. Well, when a ravine, ravine comes becomes a bluff like that, the water is running downhill and then it just falls off. So in the spring, if you had a large rainfall, that would act like a waterfall. And right on the top of that, that was the place where those deer would basically cross from one point to the other. And in the examples of all those wooded types of water funnels, a lot of times it is best to just kind of confirm on foot where those actually are because they can be a little bit more difficult to find on the maps. Edges of ponds or lakes, if the water, if the body of water is too large for the deer to just want to swim across, then they could essentially cross around those types of areas, very similar to how they would uh, basically travel around an open field where you might have little points of water that stick out into the woods and the deer would wrap around those uh, little points of water and use them very similar to the inside corner of a field edge. So those would be good places to check out. Same thing goes with marshes and swamps. If you have water in those, if a deer is, you know, running parallel to the edge of that swamp, like let's say it's a, it's a buck cruising the downwind side of a transition area, cruising, looking for bedding, uh, those places where he has to kind of wrap around something like that. Uh, to stay on dry land would be a, a place to look. And then the other one would be beaver ponds. Uh, if you have a beaver pond, there's going to be a beaver dam at some point. And depending on how wide that beaver dam is, and depending on how wide the body of water is, and also what the stream looks like on the down river side of that beaver dam, oftentimes you could see deer crossing right at and on the beaver dams themselves. So that'd be a good place to look at. And those are also things that you can tell pretty easily just by looking at a, a map because you'll be able to see those ponds in an area where it's otherwise just, um, just a thin stream. And you'll be able to see where that beaver dam actually is located uh, because you'll have wide water on one side and a narrow stream on the other side. And sometimes on the aerial photos, you can actually even see trails crossing. And, you know, some of them are obviously because of the beaver activity, but you notice too that when you get down there and you verify for tracks that oftentimes the deer will be using those as well. And the last type of funnel that I want to talk about is man-made funnels. So if you have roads, if you have buildings, if you have low fences, whether it's a barbed wire fence or something similar to that, those can all uh, corral deer movement as well. Even if they aren't actually preventing the deer from, you know, kind of crossing over, there's nothing preventing a deer from crossing over uh, an open road. And we obviously know they do that a lot. But if you have, let's say a roadway that's very heavily used or like a highway that has a lot of deer traffic on it, let's say it's got, uh, uh, dividers, uh, on the sides. So it's you're just a se you know, segregated highway that's going to corral deer movement more than say a little dirt road, uh, tucked into the middle of the forest. They're going to be a lot more likely to just go ahead and cross that with buildings. Obviously they have to move around 
And if there's other man-made structures, again, they're going to have to move around those types of things. If you have a barbed wire fence, there's nothing preventing a deer from jumping over. But if you have an area where it's down, it's going to be a little bit easier for them to uh, basically cross there. If it's a smaller type of man-made thing, like a barbed wire fence, it's, you're just going to have to verify on foot. But if it's a larger thing, like a building and a roadway, then you'll be able to make that out pretty easily on maps. If I was looking at a, a map for say an urban hunt, then those are the type of things that I would key on, key in on more than almost anything else, uh, because they're a small, narrow strip of trees between say two bigger objects. That's going to be a place where deer are going to have to travel through if they want to still maintain some type of security. There's a place in Wisconsin that I found that, uh, kind of combines a lot of the features that we've been talking about on one side of this funnel, there's a steep bluff. It's too steep for the deer to want to cross over. So they basically will just cross right on the top edge of that bluff. But then on the flat side, there's also a man-made structure that doesn't really prevent the deer from going over, but it would be a lot of extra work for them to do so. And so they, they end up going basically right in between the top edge of this bluff and this man-made structure. And it's just, it's almost like too easy because it's such an effective pinch point and such an effective funnel of that deer movement. Really the biggest thing for that particular spot is just, you know, the size of the deer in the area and the fact that there's not a lot of agriculture around. So the deer will use it very sporadically. It's hard to, to pattern them. They could go through either direction on different days, just depending on where the food source is, where they happen to bed one day or the other. But its ability as a, an actual pinch point of deer movement is, is really quite strong. So I hope this was kind of a good primer there's probably a lot of things on here that most of the experienced deer hunters might already know about, but maybe there's a few on here that you didn't. Uh, and also for people that are, are new, uh, hopefully this is going to open your eyes and be able to uh, help you look and identify various types of funnels in whatever habitat you happen to be hunting and whatever uh, time of year or particular situation that you'd be looking to actually hunt them. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.